0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McLarty. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 12. I appreciate all the good comments that I've been receiving via the internet. I even had somebody write to me the other day and say, I've grown up in the church and I've never heard anybody just teach all the way through the book of Proverbs. And I know why that is, I think. The book of Proverbs, while it looks simple on its face, because it's just this series of short statements, but the subjects jump all over the place. And that makes it hard to go through in a chapter-by-chapter kind of way, which is what we've been doing. We've been trying to bite off a a chapter each night. My bailiwick, my most comfortable place to be, is places like we are on Sunday mornings. Uh, Big, extended theological treatises, Paul's very logical writing that follows a line of thought that we can all follow together so we all end up at the same place at the end of the argument. I like stuff like that. Uh, I like to spend my time in theological stuff. My second favorite, then, is the story sections of the Bible because they're, they're narrative, and you can just kind of follow the story. Proverbs is difficult because, well, because of phrases like The slothful man does not roast his prey. Okay, now we can look at that on the surface and say, okay, I understand those words. In this translation, those are English words. Those words have meaning. The slothful man does not roast his prey. Not only do you read that, but you also have to ask, what is Solomon getting at? What is he really talking about? Because the second half of it is, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. So then you have to say, okay, so the key to this whole thing is diligence. He's advocating in favor of diligence. Then you back up on it and say, a slothful man, oh, a lazy man, a slothful man does not roast his prey. He's not saying that he just eats his prey raw. What he's saying is he has no prey to roast. Because he didn't get up and go get busy. He didn't go do the effort that it took to go kill an animal, to bring it home so that he could roast it. So in the end, what he's really saying is diligent men eat and slothful people don't. They they lack, they go without because they simply don't have the diligence to get up and go do what needs to be done. And then once you read that and figure that one out, you think, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now I've really got this one. And in the very next verse, topic changes. Very next verse, you're talking about things like we did last week. We're talking about pigs with rings in their noses. You go, well, Solomon, can you just stay on track for a moment? We've understood the previous couplet that you've laid in front of us. But then you have to start from scratch again. Every new verse, you kind of have to start from scratch. You have to go back to, okay, what is Solomon saying now? And that's because, as I said in the introduction to this book, this is a series of thoughts, sayings that have been collected over time. So Solomon didn't sit and speak these things Where somebody said, okay, Solomon's now going to speak on a topic. We'll give you a topic. Zoology, go. And then he says everything he knows about zoology. That's not the way this book works. Over the course of time, he simply said intelligent, clever, encouraging, pithy things about a wide variety of subjects. And then those sayings were all collected into a book. And as a consequence, once you figure out one verse, the next verse is, Jump ball. It's a new subject. It's a new idea. And sometimes there are connecting ideas that aren't connected chronologically in the book. We've seen that several times. For instance, tonight, he's going to go back to one of his favorite topics here in chapter 12. He's going to talk about the necessity to speak honestly. Well, that's something we've already seen him cover. We've already seen him talk about that. Or look at chapter 12, verse 1. It starts right out with the phrase, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof, the NASB says, is stupid. And you say, Okay, I think I get the idea that Solomon's getting at. He's not talking about punishment kind of discipline. He's talking about the discipline that leads to being a disciple of something. If you're going to learn anything, if you're going to learn a musical instrument, you become a disciple of that instrument. You learn about that because learning that instrument takes discipline. It takes practice. It takes time just woodshedding and learning how to do that particular instrument. Okay, that's the discipline That he's talking about. He's talking about being willing to listen to other people, let other people inform you, let other people counsel you, taking in good information, and at the same time not being afraid to be corrected, not being afraid to have somebody reprove you, because that's what the second half of the verse says. But he who hates reproof is stupid. Now, if you just read that verse, where it is at the beginning of chapter 12, you'd get a fairly good feel for what he was saying, but you wouldn't get the whole picture because in chapter 13, verse 1, it says a wise son accepts his father's discipline. Same idea, same thought, just written in a different context of father and son instead of just whoever loves discipline, loves knowledge. Instead, a son ought to listen to his father's discipline and accept his father's discipline. Why? Because his father loves him. That's the reason that his father is disciplining him. And then a wise son accepts that discipline. A wise son knows that his father is correcting him, so that gives us a wider sense of the kind of discipline that Solomon is talking about. He's not just talking about, you know, beating your child senseless. Obviously, that's not the kind of discipline he's talking about. He's talking about the teaching, the bringing your children up, and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, training them, educating them, taking them through the. The science and the mathematics and musical training and you're taking them through that and those are disciplines and the wise son accepts his father's teaching, guidance, leading, discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to a rebuke. Well, a scoffer is a skeptic. It's somebody who's not willing to believe that anybody knows any more than they do. They're pretty much the only authority in their life, and that's what makes them a scoffer when other people tell them something, they scoff at it. And he says, a scoffer does not listen to a rebuke, that's to a correction, When somebody wiser than them comes along and counsels them, corrects the way that they're thinking because they are not the subject matter expert on absolutely everything, and so somebody comes along and rebukes what they think about something, they don't listen to it because they consider themselves the expert on everything. So you put those two verses together now. Even though they're separated, even though they're a chapter apart, that helps us understand Solomon's overall thinking on the subject. Now, it would have been great if somebody said, Solomon, what do you think about the wisdom of discipline? And then he said everything he knows about the wisdom of discipline. And then we could read the chapter on the wisdom of discipline. And that would be really good. That would be helpful. That would be easier. But that's just not the way the book works. The book says something on a topic, somebody collected that saying from Solomon, they added it to the book, and then at some other point, Solomon said it again, but he said it slightly differently, he put it into a slightly different sort of context, somebody recorded that, and it ends up also in this collection of things said by Solomon, but only by comparing each of those statements to each other, do you get a fuller sense of what Solomon thought about stuff and what he was describing? Does that all make sense? It's hard to say context, context, context. It is very hard to say context, context, context. Although there is a, an internal context for the book of Proverbs that requires what we just did, reading the first verse of chapter 12 and the first verse of chapter 13. The context is still stuff Solomon said, and then by comparing those statements, we get a fuller sense of what he said. So there is a context, but I agree with you completely. It's very hard to say. Just look at the surrounding context. It'll clear right up, because he goes right from whoever loves discipline, loves knowledge, to a good man will obtain favor from the Lord. There's no direct connection between those two statements outside of people who love discipline, love knowledge, they love the growth of wisdom. A wise son accepts a father's discipline, recognizes the value of his father's discipline, but then a good man obtains favor, kindness, goodness from God. Now, the word good here, we have to talk about it for just a moment, because we know, because we're New Testament people, we know, because we know the book of Isaiah, we know that there's none that does good, no, not one. The Hebrew word that's being used here is the word for good, but it's the the word for good generally. The same way that you might say, uh, does Jeff have good sense? And what? <laughs> That's interesting because he nodded twice. He, he nodded when you said no. He went, and then you said, no, he's a genius. So, so apparently he doesn't know what he is. Good in that sentence is a generic good. We know that it's not moral excellence, We know that it's not perfect holiness. We know that it's good the same way that we might say to our child, be a good boy. When we say, bye-bye now, be good, I say that to people all the time. I said that to my children every time they left the house. Be good, but that is a generalized good. That's not specific holiness. That's not moral excellency. We know the difference between good and bad. And so we're encouraging the generalized good. That's the same way that Solomon is talking here. He's saying that a man who is good is a man who is fair, a man who is just, a man who will handle his own business dealings in an equitable way. He's talked many times here about how a fool talks too much, but a wise man. The fruit of his lips is going to be knowledge. He's going to direct you in the paths of the Lord. Well, okay, we would agree. That's good. You want to be around those kind of people. Even though we're not saying they're morally excellent or holy on God's standard, which we know no man is, there is no one good who can obligate God, we totally agree with that. But even though we agree with that, we even in the New Testament, we here in the church still tell people you know, there is a standard. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. There are still things we expect you to do because you name the name of Christ and therefore be good. And we don't mean be morally perfect. We mean live your life in such a way that people recognize that they can trust you, that you're fair, that you're equitable, that you're willing to tell people positive things that are going to help them in their life rather than tearing people down. That kind of man, a good man, will obtain favor, will obtain good gifts, blessings from the Lord. But he, God, will condemn a man who devises evil. Now that phrase, he who devises evil, gives us the contrast to the good man. So now we know what he's talking about in terms of good versus evil. An evil man is somebody who thinks up plans that are evil. The evil man is one who devises evil plans. When he counsels somebody, he's doing it in a way that's going to bring about their destruction or that is going to be to his own advantage so that he can cheat them in some way. He's devising schemes all the time of how he can take advantage of other people Well, he says that God will condemn a man who devises evil. So in Solomon's thinking, since he is under the law, since the new covenant has not come into fruition yet, since he is under the dictates, the 613 rules, ordinances of the law, then yes, be good because the law demands goodness from people. And devising evil, evil schemes, evil plans, God is going to judge such people. That was true under the law, and I think sometimes here in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we have a tendency to think, and it's accurate, theologically it's accurate, for us to think, well, but God saves wicked people. Jesus saves sinners. But then he doesn't leave them in that sinful state He brings them about to be good, to be better than they used to be. Such were some of you. You were guilty of all these different crimes and sins. The New Testament does talk about the necessity, the importance of walking, talking differently than the world which has fallen in evil. So even in our New Testament theology of God saving completely by grace that God doesn't judge on the basis of our righteous actions or our unholy actions. He forgives those. Nevertheless, I would have to agree with Solomon that in the end, a good man will obtain favor, blessings from God. And that in the end, God does condemn men who are just evil. Because if men are evil and devising evil plans, God has clearly not saved them. And so therefore, since they're not being saved people, they're wicked people who are under the judgment of God. Does that make sense? Have I read too much into that? No. Okay. A man will not be established by wickedness. But the root of the righteous will not be moved. Okay, I think he's making a horticultural kind of reference here. There's a tree in my backyard. There's a couple of trees, big trees. I have a couple of big trees in my backyard. I moved into that house 30 years ago. And you know, the one thing I can say about those trees, from the time they were little saplings in my backyard, which they were, to the enormous trees that they are now. The one thing that is universally true about those trees is they don't move. They're right where they've always been. Every time I go out in the backyard, there they are. I've never seen them walking down the street. I don't see them playing tag in the backyard. My trees don't move. I don't think any of your trees do either. Why? Because they have deep roots. And it is the deep roots that established them in the ground. That's why they can withstand powerful storms and wind storms. and And they're still standing. They're still there. Why? Because of the depth of their roots that keeps them grounded. Well, that's what Solomon is getting at here, that the root of righteous people won't allow those righteous people to be moved. The storms of life are going to come. The troubles of life are going to come. And we're not going to move away from our commitment to God, to his word, to righteousness, to living after the ways of Christ that we've been taught. The discipline that we have learned as the disciples of Jesus. We're not going to be moved away from that because we have deep roots in it. We are grounded in it. But on the other hand, wickedness doesn't do that. Wickedness doesn't run roots down into the ground. Wickedness cannot establish people. Wicked men are always going to be tossed about. Wicked men are, according to James, unstable. Unstable as water. Tossed about to and fro every wind of doctrine. This is an idea that goes all the way through the Bible then, that we are established, we are grounded, we have dug deep roots so that we can't be washed about because we have accepted the teaching, the discipline of the Bible. And that gives us roots. But wickedness can't do that. Wicked men are constantly lying and devising schemes and running about trying to see what damage they can do. They don't have any depth to them. They don't have any core to them. They have no moral center to them. And as a consequence, they're thrown about by everything. I think that's what Solomon's getting at here. A man will not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will not be moved. And then after talking about loving discipline, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, a man will not be established by wickedness, the root of the righteous will not be moved, suddenly the topic changes completely to An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. This is one of the demonstrations that these are just collections of sayings, and they're not put in any particular order where you could say, okay, I'm following the logic here, I'm following the logic. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is a rottenness in his bones. Anybody want to testify? The first part or the second? The whole thing. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. The word excellent there means several different things. Again, these Hebrew words are often used in many different contexts to mean different things. The Hebrew language is a more limited language than the Greek language. The Greek has more specific nuance to it. The Hebrew uses words that are really sorted out by context, the same way that Steve mentioned context a moment ago. This word means... It can mean a virtuous wife. It can mean an industrious wife. That excellence in a wife, that standard within a wife, that good standard of holding a standard in her own life, that, he says, is like a jewel that crowns the husband. It's like an emblem of honor. You may remember that in the time of Esther, one of the things that Mordecai, Had was that he got to ride on the the king's donkey and he wore the king's robe and he had the king's signet ring. Each of those things individually were just an item. It's just an animal, it's just a robe, it's just a ring. But because it belonged to the king, these were all very honorable things. And so it was his way of honoring Mordecai. Same idea here. The crown that is placed on anybody's head is an honor to those people. And Solomon says, that a wife who excels is like a crown to her husband. In other words, she is an honor to him. But on the other hand, she who shames him, should we go into the list of ways in which a wife can shame a husband? No thanks. No (laughs) thanks? You're good? That word really encompasses all the many different ways that a wife can Dishonor her husband, can destroy his reputation publicly, can be running around behind his back where everybody else knows it and he doesn't. It can be her caught in debauchery while living. It can be sexual in nature. In any of those ways, if she ends up shaming her husband, it affects him emotionally on such a deep level, it's like the bones inside him are rotting away. She is a rottenness in his bones. So he writes, and we're going to see it come up more often as we continue through the Proverbs, he writes quite a bit about men and women relationships within marriage and the necessity to treat one another Fairly, honestly, uprightly, an excellent and upright, a virtuous and honest wife is the crown of her husband. But she that shames him is rottenness in his bones. And then the subject changes again in verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. So when we compare and contrast those two ideas, you've got justice compared to deceitfulness. Justice would be rightness, not lying, telling the truth. Deceitfulness would be lying, doing those things that benefit you at the cost of other people. So the thoughts of the righteous are just. I thought right up until this afternoon that what he was saying was that righteous people have thoughts, and those thoughts are just. Those thoughts are are right and correct thoughts. But I started reading it again today and saying, maybe what he's getting at is that the thing that righteous people think about, righteous people think about, consider, ponder on, just things, things that are righteous, things that are holy, I think that kind of comports with what we see in the New Testament. Whatever things are right, whatever things are good, whatever things are pure. Think on these things. Same kind of idea, I think, that he is saying genuinely righteous people, people who genuinely have the fear of God, those kind of righteous people think about just things, think about right things, think about The subjects of justification, think about the things of God, think about the things of rightness and goodness, and because they're always thinking about those things, then they execute those things in their lives. They are the way they are because that's what they're like, that's what they think about. That's what they consider all the time. Do you think it could even be interpreted because the next uh, statement after it is about what comes out of their mouth? you know, what the wicked says, do you think thoughts and counsel could even be the advice that they give? You know, if someone says, what what are your thoughts? Yeah. Sorry. Yes, everything you're saying, yes, is correct. And what I've been trying to demonstrate is that these sayings are really kind of not connected to each other, but in the largest context, you'll find Solomon commenting and recommenting on similar topics. Right. For instance the excellent wife is the crown of his head, would I understand that based on a man is not established by wickedness, you know? Those are two different thoughts, two different things, so they have to be understood within their own saying. My Bible grouped the two together. They they grouped them so I thought they were connecting. Uh, Could be. It's interesting that those three verses right in a row all use the word wicked. Mm-hmm. The same word, wicked. Yes, but that's actually a word that Solomon uses a lot. Yes. So the thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels, which is the advice, when a wicked person comes along and tells you how you ought to live your life, what you ought to do, he's not interested in you or your benefit. He's interested in deceiving you. The counsels of the wicked are lies. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. So then who should you go to if you're looking for counsel? How should I live my life? Look, I'm in trouble. I need some help. Or even what is the truth of something? How should I understand something? How should I understand the word of God? What does the fear of the Lord look like? Who should you go to to ask those kind of questions? You should go to righteous people whose thoughts are just. You shouldn't go to somebody who's wicked because the wicked people are going to purposely deceive you because that's all they know to do. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood. And yes, I do see the connection that the counsels, the explanations that you get from the wicked are not only deceitful, but the words that they say, the things that come out of their mouth, the words of the wicked are trying to kill you. That's essentially what that phrase means. Where it says they lay in wait for blood, it's a personification of those words because robbers, wayside robbers on the streets, would lie in wait until travelers would come by. They would pounce on them. They would kill them. They had a purpose for being there hiding by the roadway. Their purpose was to shed blood to enrich themselves. And he's saying the words of the wicked are doing that exact thing. As they're talking to you, they are waiting to shed blood by the things they've said to you. So the words that they're giving you are deceitful words that are designed to hurt you, not to help you. But the mouth of the upright will deliver them, deliver that person who's been confused. So the contrast is words again, the words of the wicked. Are going to kill you the words of the wicked are for the purpose of deceiving you the words of the wicked are going to shed your blood the cure for that is the mouth of the upright the mouth of just people who think about just things those are the people who you can actually trust and who are going to speak for your benefit who are going to try to bring godly and righteous things into your life as opposed to those people who are just trying to use and abuse you. Anybody here ever been uh, fooled by somebody with a slippery tongue? yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we all know that. And you feel dumb afterwards, don't you? You feel like, how did I get taken? We all know what it's like to be taken advantage of. And so it really is a a great find in this lifetime, in a world where most people are trying to gain an advantage over you, where most people are trying to use you for their own benefit. It really is a great gift when you can find somebody who you trust, when you find somebody who will be honest with you, when you find somebody who may even rebuke you, who may even correct you whose words may be a little rough to hear, but they're beneficial to you. That's why they do that. And a wise person loves that discipline because that's part of the knowledge that they are assimilating. The words of the wicked lie and wait for blood, and the mouth of the upright deliver those people. The wicked are overthrown and they are no more. But the house of the righteous will stand. I think that has a lot of similarity with the notion that there is a root to the righteous so that they can't be moved. The house of the righteous is going to stand. When the wind comes, the wicked are overthrown. They are no more, I think is just a phrase that means they're moved. They're constantly moved. They have no root. They have no grounding. They can be moved about by every lie that comes down the street. But the house, the dwelling, the place, the stand of the righteous is secure, deeply rooted. It's going to stand. Verse 8, a man will be praised according to his insight but one of perverse mind will be despised. When I read these things, I also try to remember that Solomon was, after all, king. And he was, after all, surrounded by counselors. And there were people who were helping him in his rulership over Israel. I assume... With everything we know about Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, I assume they were a troublesome lot. (laughs) And so being a king was not a fun and easy job. Even though we read about all the things and the wealth and the stuff that Solomon had, he also had a tough job. So he would appreciate somebody who could come in with insight. Somebody who came in who had some wisdom. Somebody who could help him in his judgments on the nation. And so he would praise a man like that. That man would end up with praise. Praise from the king. Praise from other people. A man is going to be praised according to his insight. If you come in and you're wise and you give good counsel, you have depth of insight, you have proper empathy, you have understanding of what's going on in people's lives, if that's the way you are, you're going to receive praise, not only kingly praise, but praise from other people for being like that. But the person who has a perverse mind ends up despised. So earlier I asked you all, uh, have you ever been fooled by somebody and their slippery tongue? Well, someone of a perverse mind who does that to you, who deceives you that way, he doesn't end up your best friend. Mm -hmm. He doesn't end up being your buddy. That's not the one you want to hang out with. In fact, what he ends up is despised. And if my scenario of the king and his counselors and insight being praised by the king, if that's true, then somebody who comes before the king with perversity who is just looking for self-advancement, who's looking to use the king in ways the king doesn't like, well, then, yes, he's going to be despised. He's going to be sent out. Verse 9. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. What is that about? What the subject really is is somebody who tries to honor himself. It's about somebody who are looking for self-glory, somebody who is looking to make himself important. He honors himself. And then he's contrasting that with somebody who is lightly esteemed, which means he doesn't have a reputation. People barely know who he is. He's not somebody that people would go, oh, look at him. He's rich, and he's powerful, and he's mighty, and everybody knows him that lightly esteemed man he then describes as a lightly esteemed man who has a servant which means that he does work that he does have some substance that he does have servants who help him even if nobody knows him and that is contrasted with somebody who honors himself but doesn't even have food Okay, so why doesn't someone have food we saw that earlier Somebody who doesn't work doesn't have food. That's even carried over into the New Testament. If you don't work, you don't eat. So somebody who has no bread to eat is somebody who is essentially lazy, but he's also looking to promote himself, and that man is much worse off than the person who's lightly esteemed, who doesn't really have a great amount of reputation. People don't know a whole lot about him, but he must work because he has a servant, Do you understand the contrast? So a lightly esteemed man with a servant is better than him who honors himself but lacks bread. Verse 10. A righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruel. I don't think that verse is about beasts in the end. I don't think it's about donkeys and buffaloes. I don't think it's about kitty cats and dogs. I think what he's saying is a righteous man has regard for life across the board, for human life and for animal life, that he has regard, he has respect, he has compassion for all of life, and that compassion is a form of goodness because the contrast is, but the supposed compassion of the wicked It's cruelty. So wicked people may look like they're compassionate, but you know they're really just using you. They're trying to achieve their own honor. They're trying to lift themselves up and make themselves important. And the words that they say are lying to you, bringing bloodshed upon you. Ultimately, they're trying to kill you with their words. That is the way that wicked men are. So even what you might see as or understand as their compassion is still just cruelty and that cruelty would show itself in how that person deals with people but also how he deals with animals if you're walking down the street and you see somebody kick a dog immediately you're put off by that immediately you're thinking that's not right that's not right hey 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 get away from that what what are you doing You know that he's demonstrating what goes on in his heart, what goes on in his mind, that he is a person of cruelty, of wickedness internally, and it is demonstrating itself in the way that he treats animals. And so Solomon says that a righteous man has regard not just for the life of people, he has regard for the life of even his beast, because he's a good man, because he's a righteous man. But the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Verse 11. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. But he who pursues vain things lacks sense. That's that same idea we saw in verse 1 as he's stupid. He is senseless. He's not thinking, he's not using his God-given brain. So the first half of that verse is, if you till the land, you'll have plenty of bread. What does that mean? Is he really talking about us getting out every day and tilling our yards? Or is he saying, be diligent, somebody who works, somebody who gets up every day and is productive, the end result of that productivity on a daily basis is going to be that he doesn't have any wants. That's what the bread part means. He's going to never have the necessity. He's never going to be starving. He's never going to be lacking the things that he requires in life because he's capable of working and he gets up and works. He tills his land. He does the necessary work to have a harvest. And then when he has the harvest, he has plenty of bread. But the bread is the result of his diligence. And he who pursues vain things lacks sense. That word, of course, is empty things, needless things, pointless things. People who spend all their time, rather than being diligent, rather than working, rather than tilling the land, they spend all their time on time-wasting things, empty things, vain things. And then they go hungry. At the end of the day, it's like, well, what do you got to show for it? You've spent all your time on useless things. So naturally, Solomon would say, if you do that, you lack sense. You're senseless. You're not thinking. You're not paying attention to how life works. Stuff doesn't just show up. You got to get out there and work for it. He who tills the land has plenty of bread, but he who pursues vain things lacks sense verse 12 the wicked desires the booty of evil men but the root of the righteous yields and the nasb adds the word yields fruit so once again we're talking about this root thing Solomon likes this horticultural reference of of people who have roots to them that makes them unmovable, but then that root also, as roots do, the root sucks up water and then produces a healthy tree which produces fruit, and he says that's what a righteous person is like. From the root on up they yield fruit. The things that they say, the things that they do, the counsel that they give is positive, is fruitful. And that gives us some idea what the first half of the verse means, which is the wicked, rather than working, rather than yielding their own fruit, they desire the stuff, the stolen stuff. That's what the booty is. Uh, That's a word that goes back, the English word goes back to the idea of piracy, when you stole things. And so evil men just want the booty of stolen things they don't want to work for it they don't want to do the right things that produce plenty of bread they end up desiring, wanting, looking for the stuff that other evil men have stolen that's our idea of how you get ahead in life other people steal it, you steal it from them it's just a vicious cycle of people stealing and that's how we get ahead but the root of the righteous Ends up yielding fruit because righteousness from the root up produces goodness, produces wise words, produces wisdom. Verse 13 An evil man is ensnared, is the word here. It means trapped. It's the same word as if you set a bear trap in the woods. Or if you set a net in the woods and then an animal comes by and gets trapped by that trap, they are ensnared. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. In other words, the stuff he says is trapping him. Mm. The things he says are ensnaring him. The evil man is ensnared by the sin, the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will escape from trouble. In other words, won't be ensnared. Won't get trapped. Won't have to chew off a leg. Righteous people don't chew off their legs. Are you following me? Okay, I was just seeing if you were still awake. Righteous people are going to escape from trouble. Okay, what does Solomon mean by that? He means if you're righteous with people, if you're fair with people, if you're just with people, you're not ever going to have to escape. They're not going to try to ensnare you entrap you they're not going to try to do you evil because you're a just a fair a righteous person in the way that you conduct yourself and that is your escape from the troubles that will ensnare evil men because their transgressions their lies the things they say are ultimately going to catch up with them and when they do catch up with them it ensnares them it traps them They get caught. As I said a couple of weeks ago, to be a good liar, you got to have a good memory. Mm -hmm. Because if you go around lying to everybody and you're not keeping track of what lies you're telling, eventually somebody's going to compare notes and find out that you're just a liar and that's going to trap you that's going to ensnare you so if you're righteous if you're just if you're honest in your dealings with everybody across the board then you don't ever have to eat those words you don't have to worry that your words are going to come back on you and trap you and ensnare you does that make sense yes okay and don't chew off your leg unless you have to okay am I the only person that was really amused by don't chew off your leg really really Verse 14, a man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words. That's very much the opposite of a man who is ensnared by the sin of his lips. A righteous man, when he talks, because his thoughts are just, he's going to say good and righteous things. And a man will be satisfied, satiated. He's going to have good things in life because of the good fruit that he demonstrates with his words he's going to give good counsel he's going to give good advice he's going to be honest with people he's going to point people toward good and productive things starting with the fear of the Lord and he will be satisfied then by the good fruit of his words and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him we'll finish on that verse the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. I think there's a positive and a negative way that we can look at that. Because it's a truism either way. The deeds of a man's hands will come back to him. So if your hands are always finding wicked things to do, if your hands are involved in constant evil chicanery, you're only thinking about yourself, self-promotion. You're hurting other people. If that's what your hands find to do, those deeds of your hands are going to come back on you. It's going to come back. Eventually, you're going to be found out. You're going to be figured out. Your lies are going to come back on you. People are ultimately going to put you out, the same way we read earlier that a man who has wisdom, who has good counsel, is going to be, is going to be blessed, is going to be honored. But a person who is wicked who is using his tongue to hurt other people, who is using his lips to lie to other people, to bring honor to himself, that person and his deeds are going to catch up with him, and eventually nobody wants to be with that guy. But he brought that on himself. The opposite of that is... If, in fact, you follow the biblical directive, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever you you find to do, do it as unto the Lord. If that's the way that you live, then know that the fruit of those good works that you're doing with your hands, those deeds of your hands, those those are going to come back to you. Because if you're out there being kind to people, if you're out there being good to people, if you're out there being generous to people, if that's the way you live, then in your day of need... In your day of desperation, when you need somebody to come alongside you, you're going to have a lot of friends who are willing to do that. You're going to have a lot of people who are going to support you. And when you have a whole lot of people, or even just a few people, who are willing to help you through your times of trouble and support you, then you can never really fall. You can never really ultimately fail because you have people around you who will lift you up through that. So if your deeds are evil, that's going to come back on you. If the deeds of your hands are good, that's going to come back on you. So either way, Solomon is stating a truism. And the reason we're stopping right on that verse tonight, outside of the fact that it is 8 o'clock and my time is up, is that this is a reality within the church. And it's a reality that we've talked about through the years, that The community of the church and what the church is meant to be is a community of people who help each other, who lift each other up, who support one another, who are generous with the things they have. But not just their material things, they are willing to share their wisdom, their knowledge, their rebukes, their good counsel. They're they're not going to let anybody within the community ultimately fail, ultimately fall without coming alongside them and saying, what can I do? How can I help you? And that is one of the grand advantages and reassurances of being part of the community of the church, is knowing that there are people around you who love you. And so ideally, ultimately, we of the church who have the Holy Spirit of God are walking in our righteousness, are thinking about just and righteous things. We are conducting ourselves in a way that is right and just, and that is exuded by the fact that we're good to each other. And that's why Solomon was even talking about good to animals. They're good to beasts. Righteous people, upright people, people who have been justified by God are good people, if I can use that generalized good there and they're good to each other in such a way that you're going to be all right. It's one of the great promises, guarantees of the church is whoever you are as an individual, if you're in that church community, you're going to be okay. Cuz the rest of us are going to catch you when you fall. That's good. You get that idea? Yes. Okay. Questions? We're all right. We didn't quite make it through that chapter, but I wanted to give adequate time to each of those sayings. And yes, as you can tell, I do As as I read through these things. I sort of do what Megan does. I look for context. I look for big, overarching ideas because ultimately Solomon did have big, overarching ideas. We just have to find those big, overarching ideas in what we find in each of these individual phrases. Make sense? Yes. Good. Did you enjoy that? Yes, sir. You glad you were here? Yes. Don't chew off your leg. Yes. OK, I still think that's funny. I don't know why. I enjoy it. <laughs> All right, then. Say goodbye to the, let's see, internet folks, internet congregation, folks in general, those people, the digital Just say goodbye. Bye. Bye.